little story about a fox. It's a story about a fox that lived in a forest that was along a large wall. And he didn't really know what that wall was protecting. And he wanted to find out. So he started walking along the ridge of the wall to see where it went. And he kept going and kept going. And eventually he came back to the starting point. And then he realized it was a circle and there was, there was no end to it, no way in. So he searched around again and tried to find some crack or hole where he could peer into the wall to see what was on the inside. Eventually he found a small hole and he looked in and he saw it was a magnificent garden filled with all kinds of delicious fruits and vegetables and his mouth started to water and he desired so intensely to be inside of the wall on the other side of the wall to enjoy all the pleasures of that garden. And he tried to get as much of his head and body into that hole as he could to see if it was possible to squeeze through, but, but it was not possible. Finally, he decided that he would fast. <laughs> and, and if he fasted long enough, that would lead to his ability to squeeze through the hole and that would make him happy. So he fasted and he fasted. And the fasting wasn't too painful because he knew what he stand to gain entrance into this little paradise. And eventually he's skinny enough to, <laughs> to enter into the garden. And he squeezes through and, and then he starts to just grab everything he can. He starts eating all the fruits and vegetables and he's gorging himself for a while till he exhausts himself with his gluttony and he rolls over and starts to rest after he stuffs himself. Then the next day he would do the same thing. He would eat and eat and then he would rest and he was loving this life. But eventually one day he hears a noise inside the garden and he realizes it's the farmer and he is with a small party of people and they're hunting him because they notice that the garden is shrinking. So now he runs back to the hole because he doesn't want to die, but he can't fit out <laughs> because he's gained too much weight. So now he has to fast again, but this time it's miserable because he's surrounded by fruits and vegetables <laughs> that he desires, the temptation, and then eventually he's once again thin enough to pass back out and when he narrowly escapes death he gets back on the other side and breathes a sigh of relief that he's back to the way he was that's the end of the story and it's just a little just a little story about what peace really is and it's sort of a coming to terms with reality it's a, a path towards self-acceptance and sometimes that path is you know lateral for a while or sometimes it goes in the wrong direction and we reach a dead end and we have to turn around but we don't have to go back that way again so sometimes it's more like a maze than a straight path we'll talk a little bit about a few types of paths historically towards experiencing inner peace so i thought we would just start in Far East Asia, I talk a little bit about Taoism. So I pulled a few passages from the Tao Te Ching, the famous book, Chinese book about 
Taoist philosophy. And then we'll talk a little bit about yoga, yoga philosophy that originates in India. Then I thought I'd briefly mention a little bit of the life of St. Francis from Europe, and then tell a little bit of the story of an American woman known simply as Peace Pilgrim. And she has a little book, not written by her, but it's a collection of sayings from her journey. And in it, I, I find that there's a really, really simple, practical way to cultivate inner peace. And it's laid out in 12 steps. So I will read this first verse that I've highlighted from the Tao Te Ching. It's verse 3. There's 81 verses in this little book. It was written approximately 2,500 years ago and been translated into English many times, more times than any other Chinese document. It's attributed to the Chinese sage Lao Tzu, and the mythology goes that he was attempting to leave the country as a very old man, maybe over 100 years old, and he was heading west towards the Himalayas. But before he left, a guard, a palace guard stopped him and demanded that he transcribe some wisdom from the sage for their people before he left. So it's said that in one, in one uh, sitting, he narrated these 81 verses to the guard who wrote them down and preserved them and became a famous Chinese document, and it's known as the Tao Te Ching, which translates loosely to the power of the way, maybe. The Tao is very mysterious and hard to translate, but it's loosely known as the way of things. So I want to start with verse 3, because I picked out some verses that, that speak specifically to experiencing more inner peace. This one goes... If you overesteem great men, people become powerless. If you overvalue possessions, people begin to steal. The master leads by emptying people's minds and filling their cores, by weakening their ambition and toughening their resolve. He helps people lose everything they know, everything they desire, and creates confusion in those who think that they know. So practice not doing and everything will fall into place. So you'll see throughout this book that the concepts of yin-yang are discussed in detail. That is connected with this taijitu symbol that's known as the yin-yang symbol. So Taoist philosophy or approach to inner peace is one of balancing the opposing forces of the universe but recognizing these forces like night and day, um, up and down, left and right, hot and cold, pleasure and pain, and, and starting to understand the inseparate quality, uh, inseparable quality of all of these forces. You can't have up without down. You can't have pleasure without pain. Why can you not have pleasure without pain? Because eventually the pleasure has to go, and once it goes, that's painful. So once you decide to start something pleasurable, you've also decided to start something painful. But the pain will come later. When you have something painful, you've also 
have the ground for something pleasurable because as the pain goes away, you feel relief, which is pleasurable. So the Taoist starts to look deeply into this, starts to penetrate this this uh, duality of nature and then ultimately transcends it. And by transcending it, by becoming more disinterested in good or bad, pleasure or pain, they find peace. So what do you think practicing not doing means? This is a specific technique in martial arts, in the Taoist martial arts known as Wu Wei, which means the art of not doing. Practice not doing and everything will fall into place. Going with the flow. The opposite of going with the flow would be what? Resistance or paddling against the current. So when we paddle against the, against the current, we create our own turmoil. When we go with the flow, the current is doing a lot of the work. But the only way you can go with the flow is if you accept that, if you allow that to happen. So there's another aspect of not doing, and that is the realization that we're not doing as much as we think we're doing. When we say, I'm going to go cook dinner, what do we really mean? I'm going to take the vegetables that grew by the forces of nature, (coughs) and I'm going to put them in a pot, and the fire is going to cook it. I'm going to turn a knob, and the fire will cook it, and I'll watch it, (laughs) and I'll stir it once in a while with the ladle that I didn't make, you know, and so on. But when you really look deeply into things, you'll see when we say something simple like, I'm cooking, what we really mean is I have the thought, the belief that I'm doing. And that's known as ego. And ego creates a lot of trouble in life. And ego literally translates in its, in its ancient language, in the ancient languages, to I am doing. The word for Ego in Sanskrit is ahamkara. Aham means I am, kara means doership. So it translates literally to I'm the doer. So the thought I'm doing is a problem, is the source of ego. You can break out of the thought that I'm doing by seeing all the forces of nature and the pairs of opposites that come together to create the thought that I'm doing, to create the feeling that I'm doing. Even if it feels like I'm doing, still, if we break it down even further, the hand is doing. When I say I ate the food, the stomach is digesting, the intestines are digesting, the systems in my body are functioning, and I have no control over them. I can't slow them down or speed them up, even if I wanted to. And yet I say, I ate this. So what do I really mean by that? It's just an idea, a feeling of something separate. But. When it gets a little bit out of hand, it creates a lot of turmoil. When we start to live in the service of that idea, because that's really what it boils down to is an idea. And when my life is based around that idea, that principle that I'm doing stuff, then it creates the sense of separateness, the sense of possessiveness. Well, if there's a me that can do all these things, then maybe I should have more for that me, even if it means creating some dysfunction or disharmony. And that's why it's said to practice not doing. That doesn't mean you stop doing things necessarily, but silence will help you to feel it, to feel that the other forces beyond beyond the idea of the ego are at play and operating. So silence will help you perceive it, but ultimately we don't have to stop doing anything. We just have to have that awareness, that higher awareness.
And the earlier part of this verse starts to introduce the concepts of yin yang. And now this ninth verse goes deeper into how things circle back around to each other. Verse 9 says, Fill your bowl to the brim and it will spill. Keep sharpening your knife and it will blunt. Chase after money and security and your heart will never unclench. Care about people's approval and you will be their prisoner. Do your work, then step back the only path to serenity. So now it speaks directly about the path, the Taoist path to peace, serenity. So it translates to serenity or inner peace. Filling your bowl to the brim and then it starts to spill, sharpening your knife and it will eventually blunt if you kept going in that direction, which means what you think is in that direction ultimately leads to the thing that you don't want. That's what I said about pleasure and pain. Once you go after something pleasurable, you're also going after the painful experience. Because if you start something, it has to end. Everything that has a beginning has an end. So once I start a relationship, I have to have some end to that, at least in its human form. And that will ordinarily be painful when somebody dies or when something changes. When I start to eat a delicious meal, it has to come to an end. And I wish there was a little bit more room in my stomach to keep going. So every, every beginning has an end and that brings us back to the thing that we thought we were avoiding by going after pleasure in the first place. When you are worried about what other people think, then you're their prisoner. Then you can't be happy unless they are favorable to you or unless they understand you or have the right opinion of you. And think about how much stress that we feel when somebody doesn't understand us. I have to show them that they have the wrong idea about me. And we fight and we struggle. And sometimes no matter what we do, we can't change their opinion about us or their thought about us. But it's the, the struggle to change that, that aspect that's outside of control that creates so much turmoil. And then do your work and step back. I think... It's something that an artist might have to struggle with in realizing that you make something and then you don't have a whole lot of control over what's going to happen with that or how it will be received or where it goes from there. But you did your part. You made the art, you know. So this is something that, that I've had to grow into as an artist too, making music and learning that I need to do my part and then step back and let the music do whatever it's going to do or let people do with it whatever they wish to do with it. And maybe sometimes it does what we would say is really well and maybe sometimes it doesn't do so well. But why should I be so caught up in that? That's not my part, that's not my role and I don't have control over that so much. So if I can learn to step back, I did my part. So now I step back and accept whatever comes. Let the outcome be. In yoga philosophy, they talk about this as the fruit of your actions. So we have the right to perform these different actions, but we don't always have access to the fruit. It's like a person who plants a tree doesn't necessarily enjoy the shade 
or you plant different seeds and you get some fruit at various times. You plant spinach and you get it in a matter of weeks. You plant an apple seed and you get it in years. So we don't know when the seeds we plant are going to bear fruit. So why should we be so concerned with when we get to enjoy the fruit of what we did? When people are obsessed with the outcome of their actions, they get really worried and they get really stressed out. If you're more focused on your present action, you'll find more inner peace. So as a parent, people do their best as a parent, but then they want the outcome to be favorable. I was the best parent I could be. I, you know, spent time with you, I cared for you, I protected you, and now you're disrespecting me. Well, there's no guarantee that if you do everything right as a parent that you get a good outcome, right? And there's no guarantee that if you do everything wrong as a parent, you get a bad outcome. So what that means is do your work and let the outcome be as it may. And don't be so concerned with it. Don't be obsessed with it. I can't control the outcome. I can control how I do it, though. I can control how I live. I can't make people like me, but I can decide if I want to be a kind person or not, if I want to live it within my values or not, or aligned with my values. But I can't control how other people are going to respond to me or what they're going to make of me. So the less I'm worried about that, then the less I'm a prisoner. Once I need their approval, then I've lost a lot of my power. I've lost a lot of my control. I've relinquished it to other people. If I need you to appreciate me, then I'm a lot more helpless. And then my path to inner peace goes through you, seemingly. So the only way then is to let go. Most spiritual cultures say that ultimately you got to get your mind still if you really want to feel inner peace. And that sounds like so daunting. There are very practical strategies to slow your mind down. The experience of peace is not an all or nothing proposal. It's not like you work, 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 practice, 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 and then one distant day you feel peaceful. Peace is something that keeps growing and growing and growing with you and there's no end to how deep it can be. You sit down and meditate just once and you can feel more peaceful than you did before you started to meditate. So it's not an all or nothing thing. All along the way, you'll feel joy and peace and inspiration to continue in that direction when you start to explore it. But anyway, verse 16 says, again, as many traditions say, you have to empty your mind of all thoughts. Then let your heart be at peace. Watch the turmoil of beings but contemplate their return. Each separate being in the universe returns to the common source. Returning to the source is serenity. If you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you, and when death comes, you are ready. The idea of being ready for death is pretty scary. Most people don't really want to think about that. But there's a mini-death every night. When you go to sleep at night, you pretty much go into total nothingness after you dream for a little while. And that nothingness is 
probably what it's like to be dead. That's why a lot of times when people are feeling suicidal, they might express it as, I just want to go to sleep and not get up. That tells me that on one hand, we're really not as scared of death as we think we are. Because at the end of the day, if you lived fully, you have no problem letting go and just, you know, disappearing into the abyss. The only time we really struggle with that is if, you know, we didn't really fulfill our purpose that day. A lot of things that we're worried about, everything feels undone. I didn't apply myself. If you're, if, if you're too lazy on a particular day, you're not going to be tired. If you work diligently and you are wholehearted in your activities, by the end of the day, you won't have any interest in staying awake anymore. And you have no problem letting go. Similarly, when we get on the path or our path towards fulfillment, when the end comes, we're ready. Just as we're ready at the end of a fully lived day. It doesn't make sense now, but it doesn't need to. Just as going to sleep in the middle of the day doesn't make sense when you're at work. But it makes sense at the end of the day. And that's sometimes hard to understand in the middle. But when you get there, if you're applying yourself fully, when that time comes, it makes sense. And it will be peaceful. So that verse starts to speak to that. And the idea of the source. Well... It says all things return to the same source. And other analogies for this, both in Taoism and different traditions, is the ocean. The ocean is one, but the waves are many, and they are all different shapes and sizes. They're born in the ocean. They rise up out of the ocean. They have their own shapes and sounds and forms and textures. And then they ultimately crest and bend and merge back into the ocean. So it appears as though there's many things on the ocean, but ultimately there's only one water. And we can see that with the earth as well. The earth produces a tree, it pushes up out of the earth, and it has its seemingly separate nature. It lives its long life and eventually falls, decomposes, and literally merges back into the earth. It's the same with human beings. They emerge onto the earth, they claim some plot of land, and then they die on that land and they merge back into the land and then the land continues long after that person thought they owned that land. So we see this phenomenon happening again and again in all different forms. When a person starts to realize that we all come from some common source, be it nature or the universe or, or something beyond all of that, one can find peace in that. Because when we don't contemplate that, we feel as though separateness is the ultimate reality. But when you look deeper into this, you see that things come and return to the same common source, whether that's the earth or the ocean or the universe or the Tao. And I love this description of what it's like to be in this state. You naturally become tolerant disinterested and amused. Disinterested and amused at the same time. It sounds contradictory. Kind-hearted like a grandmother, but dignified as a king and immersed in the wonder of, of the Tao. The poet William Blake said something very similar to the last verse that's, that was speaking of filling the cup until it spills, sharpening a knife until it blunts. 
William Blake in one short poem said, excessive joy weeps, excessive sorrow laughs. So you see when people get some great award or so happy they start to spontaneously cry. And when people are so dejected, they start to laugh because like nothing else can possibly go wrong. It's as ironic as can be. So it once again shows the cycle of things, the, the balance of the forces of nature. If you want to shrink something, you must first allow it to expand. If you want to get rid of something, you must first allow it to flourish. If you want to take something, you must first allow it to be given. This is called the subtle perception of the way things are. The soft overcomes the hard. The slow overcomes the fast. Let your workings remain a mystery. Just show people the results. I tell this to friends and students all the time. Just show people the results. Don't talk about all these things you're going to do. Just do it and then show people. (laughs) It's a way to peace. We talk about so many things that we plan and dream of, and, and then we have to deal with the conflict and turmoil of people calling us out and saying, I thought you were going to do this, or when are you going to... So we should just do. We should just do what's in our heart, follow our bliss, like Joseph Campbell said, and then just let people see, just see the path that we, that we blazed. Similarly, it's important to think of the opposite sometimes when you're trying to deal with challenges in life. Soft overcomes hard, slow overcomes fast. If you want to get rid of something, allow it to flourish. You know, sometimes when people ask me questions about political turmoil, we're just going in the wrong direction. I hear, you know, in, in every administration. And I say, well, if we're going in the wrong direction, then we'll eventually realize that and we'll go in a different direction. If we're not going in the wrong direction, we might still need to go in the wrong direction (laughs) before we can realize that that way doesn't work. So that's an example of finding peace in the outer condition. Knowing that if you really allow the wrong way to flourish, have your way, let's see if that works then eventually everybody becomes clear. And I think we've seen that happen many times. We go in one direction for some time, then a wall is hit. Whether politically or in an organization or in a culture, I've seen so many leaderships come and go in every organization that I've been a part of. So when you think, I can't take this way anymore, this, it's not permanent. Same with other countries, when I observe what other countries are doing and their ways and their forms of government, they don't last, you know. Whether it's the right way or the wrong way, it's not permanent. And sometimes allowing things to flourish is how they get worked through. Small becomes big by constant building and the big thing becomes small by slowly falling apart. If you step back and you can perceive this or observe this, then you feel more peaceful about it. But the problem is we want things to happen on our timelines. And that's when we get stressed out. 
We think things should happen in a certain way. That's called expectations. Expectations really cloud the mind. Expectation, again, is like fixating on the thing that you don't have control over, the outcome. The, th the area where we need to emphasize our awareness is on our present action. Verse 37, the Tao never does anything, yet through it all things are done. That's sort of like the sun. The sun doesn't really do anything, yet because of the sun, everything happens. If there's no sun, then, you know, nothing's growing. Nobody can work because there's no light. But you wouldn't say the sun does all of that. We wouldn't say the sun did the work, but if there wasn't sun, we would be sleeping, and so no work would happen. So the Tao never does anything, that's why it's like the sun. Yet through it all things are done. If powerful men and women could center themselves in it, the whole world would be transformed by itself in its natural rhythms. People would be content with their simple everyday lives in harmony and free of desire. And this is the last line we'll look at. When there is no desire, all things are at peace. And that's going to be the theme for the, all the other paths that we look at. When there's no desire, all things are at peace. The minute there's a desire, it means something is lacking. So by definition, if you have a desire, you have a poverty. You have something that needs to be filled. And another definition of richness is one who feels content. If you feel content, like you have enough, then you're rich. If you feel you don't have enough, then you're, you're poor. You have poverty. And I've actually seen it in so many places, people with very little feeling and, and having an aura of fullness and people having so much, so much property, so much wealth and so many possessions feeling like they don't have enough and having that restless sense about them, that anxious way about them um, and always trying to have more. So this is the very basic principle of Buddhism, that desire creates suffering. So the, in the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, they're all based on the understanding of desire. Life is full of suffering. Suffering is created by desire. Overcoming desire creates peace, and that can be achieved by the Eightfold Buddhist Path. To define inner peace, I think, is difficult because it's something that we need to experience. But if we look at what we think of as the opposite of that, anxiety, unrest, tension, we can understand inner peace and what it means by understanding suffering. If we think of this tension and anxiety and we think of it biologically, I think the first way I would, I would describe peace is just by science. So when there's tension in the body or tension in the mind, there's a lot of physiological changes that come with that. Heart rate increases, endocrine functioning changes, adrenaline is released, more cortisol is produced. Those are hormones that come out of the adrenal glands. And essentially these changes equip the body to deal with danger. The problem is there isn't usually a lot of danger in the present moment. A lot of our ideas of danger are in the forms of worries, which means in the future. In the future, I won't have enough. In the future, I won't get what I want, or I'm gonna lose what I have. 
So all these worries create tension and the body interprets it as danger, as a threat. So it gives you all of these changes which are uncomfortable, which becomes suffering. Anger is, a, is another form of anxiety or, or a certain type of anxiety. And it gives us all this heat and energy basically to deal with danger. That's why anger and danger are, are just one letter apart. The opposite is recognizing or being at peace with the environment. Then the body starts to shift from that tense state and that restless state to a calm state. And calmness is associated with the parasympathetic nervous system, the opposite of fight or flight. Fight or flight comes with a sympathetic nervous system activation. And so scientifically, that's what calmness means. And when it's stable, when we go deeper into that calm state, then we're either in deep sleep, because when you're in deep sleep, everything is relaxed. There's no tension in the body. We're not on, on edge. We're not anxious. We're not angry. So we're either in that state or we're moving towards an awakened state. So we're either in deep sleep or we're deeply awake. And this essentially are the same experience, except in one, we're not conscious of what's happening. So it's called the bliss of ignorance because it's something we experience through default. When we experience it through our conscious awareness, our conscious awakening, then that's called enlightenment. But peace is an unfolding process, so it's not like an all or nothing thing. It starts with calmness and relaxation and it grows towards a very deep awakening and self-acceptance and the vision of where we are in the grand scheme of things and being able to see our place in the universe. And we can at times get glimpses of this. And I love that because it also reduces judgment about which way is right. Somebody could be on the wrong path and tomorrow, boom, they're peaceful. They had some flash of lightning and they got it. And there's stories of that in every tradition. So the person we might be criticizing might be, you know, one step away from being totally at ease with their life and everything. One event that pushes them totally into harmony. So when we realize that, it, there's, just, there's just no point in fixating on what other people are doing wrong or how far away they are from being in harmony with us or with, uh, with nature. In yoga, I'll just take one verse out of the Yoga Sutras, which is the most, um, I guess the most famous treatise on yoga. It's also from around the time of the Tao Te Ching, maybe 2,500 years ago, written by a sage known as Patanjali. The four keys to unlock the four doors or the four locks on peace. And the four keys are Maitri, Karuna, Mudita, and Upekshanam. Maitri means friendship, Karuna means compassion, Mudita means joy, and Upekshanam means indifference or detachment. But when to use which key for which lock is the secret. The four locks are happiness, sorrow, vice, and virtue, virtue and vice. So you might be wondering, how are these locks? Well, you'll see. When someone else is happy, 
does that create peace in us? Does that create peace in everybody when somebody else is happy, somebody else got what they wanted and is joyful? That doesn't always create peace in everybody. So sometimes it creates the opposite of peace, tension, turmoil, jealousy, envy, which means some form of desire. I wish that for me, that's what I've always wanted. That was the job I wanted. That's the vacation I wanted to take. That's the place I wanted to go. So if that is the reaction, we're using the wrong key. So the right key in that situation of happiness, the happiness lock, meaning mostly the happiness of others, is friendship, maitri. So to treat the happiness and success of everyone else with friendship, which means as if it's your own. Because when your true friend comes to you and says, I got the job of my dreams, you want to celebrate with them. That's the true, the true friend. The true friend rejoices in the success of, of the other. So to gradually expand that, whenever you see happiness, befriend it. But it also means to go towards the happy people, to seek out the peaceful, and to carve out time out of your life for association with them for friendship with them. That's called satsang in yoga, which literally translates to being closer to truth. And what it means practically is to go be by the wise, go spend time with the wise. That's not as hard, I don't think, as it used to be. I mean, we don't have to go to the Himalayas and hike a mountain and find a cave and go stay there. I mean, we can easily find where good things are happening, where teachers might be, where wisdom is shared. Try to build our collective happiness. The next one is sorrow. Sometimes when people are reading the news, seeing all these sad stories, they don't feel peaceful. They feel frustration, outrage. Some people have the news playing all day long, right? And it creates tension in us. News feeds are often designed to create outrage because outrage is very engaging, keeps you, keeps you interested, keeps you talking, keeps you coming back and commenting and sharing. And, and your attention is valuable. It's valuable to advertisers. But the right key is not outrage and frustration. The right key is compassion. Compassion creates an energy in us creates an, uh, an energy that gives us the ability to serve, to make a difference. And if not a difference in the big picture, at least a difference in our family, in our community, in our culture, gives us an energy to make a difference, to do something with our talent, with our um, skill. And usually when people are serving the suffering, somebody goes to a soup kitchen for Thanksgiving, do they come away from that feeling dejected? They come away from that feeling inspired and uplifted. Even though they were encountering the suffering, they were coming face to face with the sorrow, but they leave it feeling uplifted. Anytime people really give themselves wholeheartedly to some service, they come away saying they feel energized and inspired to do more and expand their, their effort and their offering of themselves. And yet, 
they encountered what seems like an obstacle to be to being peaceful. Oh, there's just so much suffering in the world. There's so much hardship. How who can be peaceful? And yet, if you meet it with compassion, you do uplift yourself and you transcend the suffering. So that is the key to the lock of suffering and sorrow. And that's called karuna, compassion. Virtue. Again, virtue might not seem like a lock, but when somebody else is noble or virtuous, sometimes people don't like them. Some of the most virtuous people, right, met with so much um, obstruction. Martin Luther King, um, Gandhi. So, so many peacemakers, so-called virtuous or noble people that we could that we could see in history. It created tension in some people. Buddha, same thing. People hated the Buddha because Buddha um, initiated women into monkhood. There's a story in the life of the Buddha that he's speaking to a group of people. And one of these people who I'm speaking of that had built up this hatred for him and what he was doing and, and that he was treating men and women equally. I mean, that's pretty progressive for 500 BC <laughs> to make women nuns and say, we're all equal here. And so some people obviously didn't like that because it's a paradigm shift and might mean that you know, there's a threat to their privilege as, as men. One particular man came to him one day ready to curse him. His anger was so intense that he couldn't talk. Because when we're so anxious or so angry, we can't control our bodies anymore. The opposite of peace. And the Buddha saying, do you have something to say? Because he couldn't talk, he just spits on the Buddha. And the Buddha doesn't say anything. He just takes his robe and he wipes his face and cleans his face and he goes on talking and the man leaves the next day he feels disappointment with himself he feels embarrassed and recognizes that that wasn't appropriate because he was filled with anger and this person didn't react when he spat in his face so he felt self-conscious because he did that and the buddha didn't react and the buddha stayed peaceful even in the middle of conflict. So he wanted to ask for his forgiveness. Comes back the next day, the, the Buddha has gone. They said he's traveled to another village. So that man travels to another village and finds the Buddha again with another group of people talking under a tree. And the man comes to him afterwards and says, can you please forgive me for my mistake? And the Buddha is saying, what mistake? And he says, it's me. I'm the person who spit in your face yesterday. He said, but it's a different day. He said, this is a different tree. These are different people. Why are you holding on to what happened yesterday? It's gone. And he said, let it go. Be indifferent to it if, and move on. He's like, I've moved on. So then the man also felt even more admiration for the Buddha because he held no grudge. He was totally indifferent to his mistake. And, and that means that with virtue, the, the key to that lock is joy. To feel joyful in the 
in the uh, journey of the hero, to encounter them in your life and to rejoice that those noble souls are out there uplifting humanity. Seek out those stories. Read those stories when you have time. Listen to them and feel joy when you listen to it, as if it's the story of your own life. On the flip side, when there's vice, when there's mistakes, what did the Buddha do? What was the Buddha's attitude to the misbehavior or the disrespect of that man? Indifference. Now, this isn't to say, you know, ignore abuse and things like that. It's little things. Gossip and our work cultures and our environments. What do people want to talk about? They want to talk about what other people do wrong. This person's so lazy. This person, you know, had an affair. This person um, did drugs, whatever. You know, people want to just gossip about what's not good about other people. They want to talk about it. They want to watch the shows about who made a mistake, who screwed up big time and dwell on that. And that doesn't make us feel peaceful. So indifference just simply means that we don't hold on to it. The weakness in you, in others, is not of much concern to me. The flaws of other people are not something that I really want to see. I want to see the light in other people and I want to be, feel joyful about that. So indifference towards vice, that's called upekshanam. Those are four keys for four locks. Those four qualities in other people can really get us, you know, disturbed and create turmoil. But if we take the right attitude and apply the right lock, we can easily overcome all four of those. The interesting thing about this is people don't necessarily see this as yoga. But this is at the heart of yoga philosophy. We think of yoga mostly, you know, as asana. Asana means posture, as the, the positions. So the positions are just one part of yoga. They're an important part. But yoga is a, is a whole system, a whole philosophy for peace. People don't necessarily get this teaching when they think that I'm getting into yoga. So if you want to learn more about that, you can... Um, study the Yoga Sutras, or you can just read more about yoga philosophy. With St. Francis, he has the famous prayer of peace that starts with, make me an instrument of peace. So simple, but so profound, because it speaks to eliminating the ego. An instrument like the guitar or the piano does not get the credit for the performance. <laughs> we give it to the player. So the instrument has no ego. It has no sense of doership. And that's what is meant by becoming an instrument, which means let me be in the flow. And when I'm in the flow, then I can merge my identity with the larger identity. Not that I lose my identity, but I get an expanded identity. Instead of my small, separate self, I get an expanded sense of who I am as part of the, um, the bigger picture. Let's think about the quality of an instrument. So take a guitar, for instance. It has strings. For somebody to be able to play that guitar, those strings need to be a particular way. If they're too tight, what happens? They break. So don't be so uptight. Don't take your, yourself so seriously. 
and too loose. Too loose means, you know, you have to you have to take something up. You have to have some values. You have to bring some some discipline into your life if you really want to be able to make some noise, make some sound. Because if the strings are too loose, too lethargic, too lazy, too undisciplined, too depressed, you can't produce. The strings have to be in balance. And what's in balance for you might be different than what's balanced for me. You have children, you have a different balance than me without children. So there's no one way. The tension on a piano string is different than the tension on a guitar string. So you have to find your balance where you can, you know, let the sound come through you. Peace is already there, but we're not in tune. We're not tuning to it. We're not opening ourselves up to it. Peace is already there, but you can't hear it because we're not in tune. We can't see it. We can't experience it. So we just need to get the instrument in tune. And Peace Pilgrim gives some good explanations for how to do this. I'll briefly say that Peace Pilgrim was an American woman. And I learned about Peace Pilgrim in India, which was interesting to be in India and find out there's this really amazing American hero, a woman too, which is wonderful because when you learn about a lot of different spiritual heroes, they're usually men. She lived in the 20th century and uh, early part of the 20th century was when she was born. In 1953, she sets out on a journey. She decided to leave home and leave everything and just start walking, walking for peace. And she decided, I'll walk until I'm given shelter. I'll fast until I'm given food. And when people approach me, I'll talk to them about peace. I will not force my ideas onto anybody. To make her contacts, she made a little tunic, a little blue shirt that said Peace Pilgrim on the front. And on the back, it said Walking for Peace. And eventually, people made her new tunics as it wore down. And they would put how many miles she had walked. Because she knew. She walked across the whole country once. So she'd walk 3,000 miles. So someone made her a new Peace Pilgrim tunic that said Peace Pilgrim, 3,000 miles for peace. And eventually it said Peace Pilgrim, 25,000 miles on foot for peace. And she never stopped walking till the end of her life. She walked from 1953 to the early 1980s. She set out on this pilgrimage in her middle-aged life. You know, the time when people are starting to think about really taking it easy, <laughs> retirement. Her retirement was not in an RV across the country, <laughs> but on foot across the country. And all she had was a couple pockets with a comb, a pen, a toothbrush, and that was it. But think of how much courage she had, and she was always peaceful. And, and eventually, people started to recognize there was something really special about her. So she started to speak in more and more places. Universities started to invite her to speak to students, and churches and congregations started to invite her to speak, and people started recording her talks. You can even find some old talks from the 70s and maybe early 80s that are now on YouTube. So if you look up on YouTube Peace Pilgrim, you can see what she looked like and hear her voice. And she just radiates this aura of, of peace. And there's a little book called Peace Pilgrim based on what she said in her talks. So it's the story of her life 
and her teachings, she talks about what led up to her being able to just step out of the home in 1953 forever and never look back and just go by peace pilgrim. Say, I don't need my name anymore. All I care about is my message now. The message is more important than me, which was another, you know, sort of expression of the disappearance of that ego consciousness. It's not about me anymore. It's about peace. So I might as well be called peace pilgrim. She talks about four preparations for being able to get on your personal path towards peace. First one is right attitude toward life. Being able to see problems as lessons, not as the story of your life or the wrath of God, the opportunity to grow. Somebody asked Peace Pilgrim, does growing always have to be painful? Does becoming beautiful always have to be painful? And she says, it is only painful so long as you don't want it. You have to be pushed into harmony. And how do you get pushed into harmony? By problems. Secondly, begin to live the good things you believe in and the values that you already hold. That sometimes requires people to actually do some inventory. What do I really care about? So maybe I really do care about peace and I need to make it a priority in my life. Maybe I need to start to make my decisions based on peace, not based on success or wealth. Not that it's not important, but to build my life around that might not lead me to be in alignment with my value. And to recognize how easy it is to be distracted from your value. Like, if we're at the store and we don't like the way the cashier is talking to us, so we become sarcastic. If you're sarcastic at that moment, are you living your values? If your value is kindness or peace or patience or tolerance, why are you not living your value at that moment? Must be we lack the self-awareness at that time. So then to look deeply into that, why did that happen to me? Why am I so quick to abandon my values and start living someone else's values? If the cashier is talking a certain way that's not in alignment with your values, why will you go to their pattern? It doesn't even make sense, but we don't realize we do it. When we're driving, and we're in traffic and somebody's on the side waiting to get in and we wave them in and they don't wave back to us and then we feel like, what a jerk. <laughs> I didn't have to let you in. So why were we doing that? If we let them in because we're courteous, then why do we need them to wave? If you need them to wave, you're not doing it because you're courteous. You're doing it because you want the outcome, the appreciation. So we're not actually living our value, we're buying somebody's appreciation to feel good about ourselves. When we're in alignment with the value, doesn't matter if they wave or not, I'm aligned with my value. If that's not their value to show appreciation, why do I then abandon my value of courtesy and go to that? So to see how easily distracted we are, the second step in the four preparations. Third, find your place in the life pattern. That doesn't happen, you know, overnight necessarily, although it did happen overnight for Peace Pilgrim because she decided to go into the forest when she was young and walk all night long through the deep, dark forest until she felt she had a, uh, a clear understanding of why she was here. 
So sometimes when we feel really far away from who we really are and what we're here to do, our purpose, it's helpful to retreat into silence or into nature because nature is already in harmony. So when we put ourselves into nature, or we have more contact with nature, we will spontaneously get insight. That's why so many uh, saints and thinkers and artists and sages went into the wilderness or into the desert or into the mountains. But they ultimately tend to come out of there because uh, it's said that the peace you find in the mountains is not your peace, that's the mountain's peace. <laughs> so you got to come out and see if it's, you know, if it's really something that you can access anywhere so that it's your peace. When we go into the mountains and everything's calm and copacetic, it's easy to be peaceful. But then suddenly when we're back in the midst of others, we lose it. So that means it wasn't our peace. But, but when we go in there, we get the idea, the path opens up, and we kind of see what our purpose is. So all you have to do to get more in alignment <laughs> with your part in the, in the play is to make yourself receptive. This doesn't necessarily mean changing your life, changing your career, leaving your family, nothing like that. It just means starting to tune yourself like the instrument. Four, simplify your life. Life is very complicated, both in our mind and in our environment. So declutter, declutter your environment and declutter your mind. All these unnecessary things we're worried about, try to reduce that. All these unnecessary possessions that we save and store and hoard but we don't ever use, simplify some of that. Because when you have more, way more than you need, you're less peaceful. Now you have to figure out how to maintain all that, which requires more money, more space, more time. And then people are afraid that they could lose it or it could get damaged. And then we lose our peace again. Then comes four purifications. One is purification of the body, which just means eating healthier. If, if what we're eating doesn't bring balance and energy to the body, it's going to be tough to be peaceful. <coughs> purification of thoughts. So be indifferent to your negative thoughts. I didn't realize that that's how simple the practice can be. I would tell a teacher, I just can't get rid of negative thoughts. Like no matter what I do, I still get like thoughts of, you know, being angry at this person or jealous of this person, even though I don't want them there. And he, he said, well, just ignore it. And so I did that and after a while it worked. And I didn't realize it was that simple. It's being different. You don't have to believe your thoughts. Thoughts come, thoughts go. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean you have to buy into it and you know, act it out and all that. Sometimes it's disturbing, but we have a very complicated history and we have the history of all our ancestors in our DNA as well. So any kind of thought can come to you at any time and stored impressions inside of ourselves. So it's not scientifically impossible that we could have any kind of tendency, innate uh, habit, or direction or predisposition in life that is not favorable to our peace. So to recognize that and to start to purify our thoughts by concentrating on the positive and paying attention to the good things in life. A positive attitude is nothing more than choosing what you want to pay attention to. 
in your life, everything is there. Good things are there, bad things are there, beautiful things are there, unpleasant things are there. What you decide to dwell on and think about more becomes your attitude. Purified desires. So we talked about desire being the cause of suffering. It's not easy to just drop desires, but we can start to purify them. Instead of just desiring stuff for me, I start to think about others, my family. Desire is still there, but it's purer than this self-centeredness. Over time, we continue to refine the desires until we can let them go. So you overcome negative desires with better desires, and then you give up desires. That's the path, you know, the eightfold path in a nutshell. Sort of like when I'm really dirty, I would apply soap in the bath or in the shower. Then I wash both off, right? So dirt comes first, then the soap, the cleaning agent, and then the water to get rid of all of it. So first comes vice, then comes virtuous effort, and then, you know, not important anymore. Fourth is purifying your motives. So what this means is we transform our life when we realize our place in the life pattern. That doesn't mean leave your family, leave your job, but change your motive about your job. You may be a businessman. You may be an artist. Billy Joel's motive for playing the piano was to get chicks. Not the purest motive. Right? But as the, as the awareness grows, doesn't mean, oh, I can't be an artist now because that wasn't a good motive. You just change the motive. Maybe I can start to use this talent that I've acquired for better things, to help more people, to draw more attention to good causes. And finally, the four relinquishments. Let go of self-centeredness. Humility is being able to see yourself as part of a greater whole and thinking of others more. That's the start of the overcoming of the ego. The idea that I am a totally separate entity in this universe then I can be lost, and I can be lonely. To achieve this, spend time in solitude, joyful time in solitude. If you're miserable, get out of the solitude. Then come back again when you can be joyful. So that you start to associate being alone with being connected. There's a difference between being alone and being lonely. Be alone, but be totally immersed in the wonder of the, of the whole. Give up attachments. Doesn't mean get rid of people or get rid of things. Give up your attachment to it. So use things while they're useful. When you no longer have a use for the thing, don't hold on to it. Khalil Gibran, who wrote The Prophet, said, give now while the season of giving is yours because everything has to be taken away anyway. So why wait till it has to be forcibly removed from you? Give when you can. So re release your attachments and then finally release your negative feelings. Why hold on to worries, to grudges, to bitterness? Let go, forgive. Be at ease again. Not for the sake of the other person getting off the hook, but for the sake of you being free. 